Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today is the Feast of Pentecost. This is an important day in the church year. In fact, one of our synods scholars recently wrote, among all the festivals of the church year, it is second only to the Feast of the Resurrection. I might be a surprise to you. That one would be so bold to assert that. Aren't Christmas and Easter the high points? But then again, we need, if we considered others like Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, the Ascension, those two are certainly high points in the church year. The importance of Pentecost is very much overlooked. But at least we don't have a secular Pentecost paralleling the real Pentecost, like we do at Christmas and Easter. And like other feasts in the church year, we are remembering events that happened long ago, but they aren't just mere historic events that we just observe as if it's some sort of anniversary, but we look at them as being very important in their application to our lives, even to this day. Every time and season of the church year has as its aim to direct our hearts and our minds to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to the peace that he has come to grant us. Even as we focus on the Holy Spirit this day, our attention never departs from Jesus. For You see, the Holy Spirit's task is to place in our hearts, through our ears, and even our mouths in the Lord's Supper, Jesus, who is crucified and has been raised from the dead. The name Pentecost is an interesting word. We know that we are now 50 days from Easter, but that word is actually transliterated from the Greek for 50th. So that word Pentecost was actually in use before what we know is now Pentecost. That word Pentecost was used to describe another feast that occurred in the Old Testament. And part of the reason why there was such a huge crowd already gathered there in Jerusalem at that first Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. What is that feast that caused people to gather in Jerusalem? That feast was known as the Feast of Weeks. In that feast, the people of God assembled before the Lord at the Holy Sanctuary where they offered to God grain and animal sacrifices. And they offered, when they offered grain, it was a new grain, freshly harvested, that already given the first fruits 50 days earlier at the Feast of the First Fruits, but now they are offering this grain offering that they have now harvested later in the spring. When they offer this to the Lord, it reminded them that they were once slaves in Egypt, as God had said when he instituted the Feast of Weeks. But it also, and it also showed, as God reminded them, that he supplies for their daily needs And the sacrifice reminds them that they are released from their bondage in Egypt. 
And in the same way, it shows them that they are released from their bondage to sin through Christ, who would be sacrificed in their place. It was called the Feast of Weeks because it occurred seven weeks after that Feast of the First Fruits. And it's interesting to note that the Feast of the First Fruits was to take place just two days after the Passover. So if you consider we are 50 days from Easter, a couple of days before that, Jesus on Monday, Thursday, celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And as has been the case the past few weeks, today's gospel also takes place on Monday, Thursday, when Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples, and when he instituted the Lord's Supper, announcing that as you eat the bread, you are eating the body of Jesus, and as you drink the wine, you are receiving the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, served as his last will and testament. Jesus speaks these words in our gospel after the words of institution are spoken and before they head out of the upper room to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will be praying first and then he will be arrested by the betrayal of Judas where then his passion continues. So while he was with them in the upper room, Jesus announced, and as we heard in our gospel, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Here, of course, Jesus is prophesying the coming of the Holy Spirit. His words are rather clear, but unfortunately, the Holy Spirit is commonly misunderstood today. Perhaps the first thing that we should address concerning the Holy Spirit are the Holy Spirit's pronouns. That seems to be the, the vogue thing to do today, to speak about what a person's pronouns are. So many in our age think that they can assign for themselves their own pronouns, thereby rejecting God as their creator who made mankind male or female, male or female, he created them. Also many in our day think that they can at the same time, assign to God whatever personal pronouns they wish to assign to God. Why would they do that? After all, the scriptures are clear. God is the Father. God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit. There shouldn't be a question as to what his pronouns are. But some find it offensive. They're put off by the notion of God using those masculine pronouns. And so some have decided that they can, in their freedom, use feminine pronouns for God. And in doing so, they also won't God call God the Father or Jesus God the Son. But maybe they assign feminine pronouns or whatever pronouns they can come up with or just not even use pronouns when referring to God. Some churches have announced that there are other formulas that can be used instead of, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They claim that it is a valid baptism to say, I baptize you in the name of the Creator and in the name of the Redeemer and in the name of the Sanctifier. But when we change the formula for baptism, we have to conclude that that was not actually 
a baptism. Some also perhaps inadvertently assign to the Holy Spirit the gender-neutral pronoun it. But recall what Jesus said of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, he will teach you all things. And so we follow our Savior's lead and refer to the Holy Spirit using the masculine pronouns, and there is no other way. The next thing we need to know is how the Holy Spirit operates. Jesus makes it clear, he will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance the things that Jesus had taught to the disciples. So the Holy Spirit's task is to teach, but how and why? On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit gave the Galilean men the ability to speak in languages that they had not learned. He guided them to speak and proclaim the word of God, to prophesy. Jesus had also said to his disciples that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you things that they cannot handle yet when they are with him prior to his crucifixion. And so Jesus is teaching them that the Spirit will guide them, and the Spirit certainly does, beginning at Pentecost. This was a miraculous working of God, that all these different people could hear the gospel in their native tongue. Today, we are privileged to support translation efforts that make God's word accessible to people across the globe. You could say that that is part of our Lutheran heritage, beginning just years after Luther nailed the 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg. Back then, the church was claiming that the only language in which to preach and to read the scriptures was in Latin, even though the Bible was originally written in Greek and Hebrew. And so Luther set out to translate the entire Bible into the language of his own people, into German. He, by this point in the Reformation 500 years ago, had completed the New Testament. And over the next decade, he would complete the Old Testament as well. We are also privileged to support missionaries who tell the nations of Christ crucified and risen and to support their efforts. The miracle, the spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues on Pentecost was preceded by two others. You may recall, first there was that rushing mighty wind that they heard from heaven and it filled the house where they were sitting. At first, when we began this organ rebuilding project, we asked the organ tuners if they could wait with dismantling our organ until after Trinity Sunday, complete the festival half of the church year. But the Lord had other plans because on Palm Sunday, half the organ, in a way, stopped working. And so we basically said to the organ builders, go ahead, take what you need to get working further on this project. That way, of course, we will enjoy our rebuilt organ even sooner. Now they're ready to take the rest, which they did this past week. And so the very Sunday where 
We observe this wind, this rushing mighty wind filling the house. We no longer have the instrument that uses wind to accompany our singing. Anyway, a few years before Pentecost, Jesus compared the Holy Spirit to the wind. He said, truly I, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So that showed that the Holy Spirit had come. The Hebrew word for spirit and wind and breath is all the same Hebrew word. And so the wind was a way for them to feel and to hear that the Spirit had come. But then they also saw that the Spirit had come, and that involved that miracle of fire. Tongues of fire alighted each of the disciples. We can't help but think about Moses, who visited with God. God spoke to Moses through the burning bush. Or how God's people as they wandered through the wilderness, were led by Christ who preceded and followed them, that rock. God made himself manifest, in a sense, through the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. Also, it is written in Leviticus 9, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces because God was making himself manifest before the people in their presence. Years later, Elijah presented a challenge before the prophets of Baal saying, And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And John the Baptist's words are now fulfilled when he declared, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So on this day, God the Holy Spirit came just as our Lord had promised and guided by that spirit, St. Peter preached a sermon directing the people to Jesus, showing how Jesus had fulfilled the scriptures. And in his sermon, Peter declared, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by death, by the hands of lawless man, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. At this preaching of Christ, showing the fulfillment of how Christ has come, how Christ is the one who had come to take away the sins of the world, showing how they are responsible for our Lord's crucifixion, whom you crucified. The people, of course, were cut to the heart. 
They asked Peter, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will come to faith. You will have the Spirit. You will believe. And about 3,000 souls were added to the Christian church that very day, that day of Pentecost. This also gives us some answers about how the Holy Spirit teaches and why he teaches. Perhaps a why is easy, although many churches don't understand the why of the Holy Spirit. They want to believe that we need to emphasize the Holy Spirit, that we need to become set on fire by the Holy Spirit, that we need to roll around. Some do that in their churches claiming that they have been struck by the Spirit. They claim that they need to speak in tongues, ignoring the fact that speaking in tongues is useless without an interpretation of those tongues. But the why? Why was the Holy Spirit sent? The Holy Spirit was sent to direct us to Jesus so that we would know who our Savior is and be saved by our Lord Jesus Christ, so that we would always have set before us the reality that even though we are sinners, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, and he died on the cross to take all our sin away, and he rose from the grave to give us life and salvation. The Holy Spirit points us to our Savior. But how? How does the Holy Spirit teach? Is it as miraculous as at Pentecost? In a sense, the answer is yes, because hearts of stone are turned into hearts of flesh. The language barriers that exist across the globe are being overcome. The word has free course in many places across the globe. Jesus is still being proclaimed even in places where Christianity is unwelcome or even forbidden. And what the Holy Spirit does through baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the proclamation of the word is simply astounding, rather miraculous, if you will, for he is working faith where and when he pleases. But that's important to note. The work of the Holy Spirit is through the means of the Spirit or the means of grace that is through the word and through the sacraments. Many figure that the Holy Spirit will lead them apart from the word and apart from the sacraments. They figure that the Holy Spirit should give them some sort of inner knowledge without having been taught. And while the prophet Joel prophesied that these things will happen, we must also remember that the prophet Daniel and the prophet Zechariah and Paul himself prophesied that the ability to speak things that had not been learned, whether they're prophecy or speaking in tongues, those spiritual gifts would ultimately come to an end. The, the miracles that the apostles performed, those various spiritual gifts that were received through the apostles laying on of hands, did come to an end. For that which is complete, when that would come, then the need for the spiritual gifts would come to an end. What is that which is complete that we need? That is the New Testament scriptures. 
When they were written, there was no longer a need for the spiritual gifts as prophecy or speaking in tongues or the interpretation of tongues, healings, or, or those other spiritual gifts. Why? Because the prophetic word had been confirmed through their miracles, through those spiritual gifts. But now that the scriptures have been written, we know that this word is true and we abide by it. But that does not mean that the Holy Spirit has left us alone or that the Holy Spirit is now ineffective in our day. For the Holy Spirit, through the scriptures, the preaching of the word, through baptism, through the absolution, and through the Lord's Supper is still at work, that same spirit. And he is bringing to our remembrance the wonderful works of God, namely the blessings, that peace we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Every time a child is baptized into Christ, the Holy Spirit is at work. When parents read Bible stories, when they read to their children the word of God, when they tell and retell those Christian events, the Holy Spirit is at work. When brothers and sisters in Christ forgive one another in Christ, the Holy Spirit is at work. When we read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures, the Holy Spirit is at work. And of course, the Holy Spirit remains at work here as the word is proclaimed and the sacraments are administered. It can be tempting, though, to think that God is somehow too distant, that God doesn't care any longer, or that he isn't at work in our lives. Because we don't always see changes in people happening quickly enough. It's hard to when we struggle with our own temptations. And so we repent and we trust in the infinite wisdom of God. And we go to the very place where we know he is at work through his word and through the sacrament. We rejoice that Christ crucified and risen is still being proclaimed right here in our midst, that the work of our Savior is still being sung in the liturgy and confessed in the creeds of the church, and that he is coming to us today through the Word and the Lord's Supper, where we are united to our Savior. In mercy, Jesus continues to bless you with the forgiveness of sins everlasting life and salvation. And so recall the words of Jesus. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Your home, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, is with Jesus. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.